0: All right, we have spent the last two weeks looking at Exodus chapter 20. Two weeks ago, we looked at how the Ten Commandments are unique amongst the commandments of the law, that these Ten Commandments have a unique place in both Jewish and Christian history precisely because of their unique role, how the rest of the law seems to be an Exposition or application of the ten basic principles, the ten categoric principles that we see outlined here in legal form. We talked two weeks ago about how the ancient Near East has other law codes, and that's to be expected because God has written his moral law on the heart of every human being, and for any society to survive, the principles and concepts of equity and justice need to be articulated. So it shouldn't be a, a surprise to you, and, and, and don't let yourself get, get hoodwinked into thinking that the Ten Commandments are, are somehow unoriginal just because there are other law codes that exist. What is interesting, though, is the other law codes of the ancient Near East, Most probably most famously the Code of Hammurabi, it's almost all case law, which is what we're going to see moving forward. There's virtually no categoric moral principle stated, what we know of in biblical law terms as apodictic law, which is a statement of absolute moral principle with no exception No circumstantial uh, contingencies to mitigate against the severity. So, for example, you shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. Those are categorical rejections of the very thing they command. There's no... Under these circumstances, you can go ahead and take what's not yours. Absolute principle. Now, last week, we saw that the Ten Commandments have been broken into two basic tables. We call them tables because it's not the two tablets. The tablets contained everything. But rather, there's two groupings. And we see these two tables or these two groupings affirmed even in Jesus' teaching where he can say in a summary of the first four commandments is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he unsolicitedly informs them that the second greatest commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments represents the classic understanding of the division of the Ten Commandments into a first grouping of commandments or first table, containing the duties that principally belong to God. These commandments are the things that God requires of his people who have been redeemed principally in their relationship with him. And then the second grouping are how we glorify God in relationship with other people. And I need it to be framed that way. Because you glorify God who issued the second table of the law by keeping the second table of the law. So you glorify God in your worship and relationship with him, and you glorify God in your relating to other people. It's no accident that the first table of the law is first. They couldn't, God didn't just spout them out in random order. It is no accident that the commands regarding our relationship with God come first, and we know why. Because all things exist for and by God. We were created by God for his glory. And so the chief thing that any of us can do in life is relate properly to God. The chief problem any of us have in life is that we do not relate properly to God. That is our chief problem. Our chief problem is not immigration. Our chief problem is not same-sex marriage. Our chief problem is not abortion. Our chief problem is that we, at our very core, are hostile to the one who made us. And that must get rectified or else all else is lost. So God issues the first tablet of the law showing us the radical God-centeredness of life. The first commandment requires us to forsake everything else that might otherwise capture our hope, our trust, our allegiance, and place it in Him. The second commandment requires us to conceive of God rightly and worship Him in truth. The third commandment requires us to witness and model God's character and characteristics to the world faithfully. And the fourth commandment requires us to recognize that our lives and times and circumstances are under his sovereignty as we submit to his ordering of time. But now turning to the second table of the law, we see the table that is most essential for the ordering and the structuring of any human society. God has written an awareness of these laws in the heart of every person. So you can find every culture affirming these six commandments in some way, shape, or form. They, de- they define terms differently. What constitutes murder? What constitutes theft? What constitutes... But everybody knows that it's wrong to steal. Everybody. Even when you go to, to a tribe in Africa who thinks that their deity gave them ownership of every cow so they can steal from other tribes, they get irate if you steal from them. Because they know stealing is wrong. And terrorists who love to kill get angry when you kill one of theirs because killing is wrong. Everybody knows this. But yet nobody knows this. Why did God have to restate what is so obvious that it's in the heart of every person and in the code of every nation? Because we're lawbreakers. Because sinful people are fundamentally self focused and self oriented. And we continually seek principally our good. And we tend to use and abuse other people. It is our natural inclination to look at other people as a means to an end. That is what happens. And God speaks in verse 1, sort of bracketing the whole conversation with you have been redeemed. I saved you. So he's not giving this law to people in order that they might become perfect and become saved. He's giving it to people who are his children, saying, look, you're about to go into a world where sin has warped their mind, sin has warped their affections, sin has warped their behavior, and you are going to be salt and light in this world. And as my people, here is what you need to be and do in order to make me look great and to model my character before the world. And so in ordering a civil society, the second table of the law is indispensable. So as we look today, in the short time we have, when I was looking at the last six commandments, the second table of the law, it is, it is pretty obvious to me, to my eye, that the first three commandments are the absolute, the first three of the second table commandments five six and seven are absolutely essential to to the ordering of any society you take away five six and seven and 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 you have the recipe for absolute chaos it is no accident though it may seem scandalous that right as you turn from the duties owed to the lord and you start looking at the table of duties owed to our fellow man, that it doesn't begin with you shall not murder, which you would think would be the most basic of human duties, right? It begins with honoring your father and your mother. Isn't that incredible? That as soon as God wants to talk about our duties to our fellow man, the first word out of his mouth is not stated in the negative, He doesn't say, you shall not curse your father and mother. He states it positively, honor your father and your mother. It goes to show that there is so much truth behind the saying that loving our neighbor starts at home. I absolutely love reading the pastoral wisdom of the church fathers. Especially Augustine. Uh, man, I tell you what, we've we put a lot of confidence in the words of modern psychotherapists, but I'm telling you what, you go back and read the pastoral writings of Saint Augustine and his grasp of the human psyche and of human behavior and the human heart and how it directs our actions. I mean, there's a reason he's Saint Augustine. He's it's it's brilliant. But even writing in the 300s, commenting on this passage, he makes a statement that is, is so obvious. And you see it's the, the ramifications of it even now. He said that if a person will not honor his father and his mother, who will he spare? You see, loving your neighbor starts at home. It is at home. When a person comes into this world, they are fully, fully developed but not fully formed, or fully formed but not fully developed. You come into the world with your body parts as they are, but they're going to grow and mature. You come into this world with a personality, but it's, go- it's not fully formed, and it's going to be formed. And the home is the schoolhouse of the soul, so to speak. It's where you're going to learn how to be a person. And it's the home that shapes a person for the rest of their life. It is indeed possible to undo your upbringing, but it is super tough. And oftentimes, the, the scars we carry or, 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 or the lessons we learn how many times, I, I, if I had a nickel for every time I heard someone say that they do something because when I was a boy, my daddy taught me, or my mama taught me, because we learn things. And the formative years are called formative precisely because of that reason. It's the home where a person who comes into the world radically selfish learns that the world does not revolve around them. Think about it. That precious newborn will go stiff with rage at not getting their way. A toddler wants everything. It claims ownership of everything it sees, wants, once had, wants to have. If it just doesn't want you to have it, it claims ownership. Okay, And a person who does not get out of that mindset is going to find life to be a very hard challenge. So in the statement, honor your father and your mother, we have two things being taught. First, the absolute importance of the home. As a schoolhouse for learning how to get along and play nice with others. It's in the home where you learn that. But directly, it's in the fifth commandment that we learn how to relate rightly to authority. A person who does not learn how to submit oneself to authority in the home will not learn it later. I was reading a study uh, in preparation for this, and, and it was so fascinating to me. It, it was talking about how learning to treat people across the board with respect is done at a very early age, and that if you grow up not learning how to treat other people with respect, as an adult, you can come to respect and obey a, a dynamic personality. For example, a, a kid can join a gang, and and for Multiple reasons come to be in awe of the gang leader and obey that leader. Or a person can join the military, and because of the coercive use of the law, they can be uh, in subject to those who are in authority over them. But every other person will be treated with contempt. Because outside of the home, it is super challenging for a person to learn to respect all other people. In the home, it is where we learn that the world does not revolve around us and that God has placed authority figures in our lives. This is why, parents, it is absolutely essential that the first thing you teach your child is that you are a person to be reckoned with. If a parent is not viewed as a person of consequence, all else is lost. You will raise the sons of Eli. The sons of Eli loved their dad, they weren't estranged from their father. And their pop loved the, his sons. Oh, he loved his boys. Family first. He failed. To teach them that things are not there for their enjoyment and their use and their misuse and that when he speaks, they better listen because they ended up cursing the whole family. Parents, you are the authority in their lives. You must teach them to view you as consequential. And that is an important concept. When it says honor your father and mother, the word for honor there at its root means to make heavy. To make heavy, weightiness. Honoring means to recognize the gravity and the consequentiality of whoever it is you're dealing with. We can speak of, you know, at, at, at General Assembly several years ago, we were dealing with the Federal Vision controversy. And all these pastors were speaking out against it, and yeah, ha, ha, whatever. But then R.C. Sproul stood up and said the same thing, but it was R.C. Sproul. And his words carried weight. The same words, the same exegesis. Everyone was just as right. Well, everyone who was against federal vision was just as right, but he had weight, so to honor your father and mother means to recognize the weightiness of their position, the gravity of their position. Conversely, in Leviticus, when it says, you shall not curse your father and mother, and anyone who does is to be stoned, to curse, actually the word there means to make light, to be viewed as inconsequential. Now, This passage was in fact given so that we could, in one hand, teach our children to relate properly to us, because where do you think, parents, children learn that there is such a thing as an authority, and such a thing as God's authority should be taken seriously? Where do you think they learn that? At home. So if they don't take you seriously, do you think they're going to be taught to take God seriously? No. But it's not just given so we can beat up our children with, obey me, though they need to be taught to obey. This was given to people of all ages who were standing at the base of a mountain. This is given to adults too. Did you know that the command to honor your father and mother does not end when you emancipate yourself from the house did you know that did you know that the apostle paul in the context of speaking of widow care issues the famous saying that if a man will not take care of the people of his house and he's referring in that context to widows so the widows of his house so who would the widows of his house be his mom or maybe his grandma But if a man will not take care of the people of his house, then what? He is worse than an unbeliever. He has denied the faith. Wow. Wow. Honoring your father and mother, of course, looks different at different stages of life. When you're a child, honoring your father and mother means obeying your father and mother. But, of course, as you become older... It means such things as considering them, remembering them, not just dropping them off at a nursing home so you don't have to deal with that old bag of bones anymore. It doesn't mean consoling your conscience by putting them in the classiest nursing home and forgetting about them. Remembering them, speaking well of them. Oh, I can't do that. I had a terrible father, I had a terrible mom. You want the classic biblical example of how honoring your father and mother can look in the Bible? Look at David and Jonathan and how they related to Saul. Saul is a tyrant. He gets so mad at Jonathan trying to stick up for for David that he tries to kill his own son. And yet there at the end, what is Jonathan doing? He dies with his dad. And David... David is repeatedly attacked unjustifiably by his king, who he refers to as father. Throughout the Bible, it's common for people in authority to be referred to as father, signifying that this passage is not limited to the home, but is really the foundation for every human authority relationship. So, honor your father and mother. Teens, do not think your parents are idiots. And if you do, right about the time you turn 20, 25, you'll discover that your parents have, have, wise, have, have grown up a lot. That's actually not supposed to be funny. You'll figure out that you've changed. But the sixth commandment, then, is you shall not murder. And we talked about that a little bit this morning in our, in our declaration of the law. The sixth commandment, oh my goodness. Of course we understand not murdering. Now, the, the Hebrew word here is technically kill. Okay? There are eight words used in the Hebrew Old Testament for context, where some sort of killing is involved, there's there's a word that's used when it, when an animal is being slayed for sacrifice. There's a word for when you're hunting something. There's a word for defense. There's a word when it's war. There's a word when it's uh, when it's basically the, a state-sponsored execution. All sorts of things. All sorts of words. The word that's used here, while it does typically convey what we would think of in the sense of murder, which is premeditated, it actually has a semantic range that includes what we would consider to be voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. So when it says, do not commit murder, or more accurately, no killing, the the Hebrew verse has two words, no killing. The word, of course, means no murdering people. You're not allowed to sit there and plot their demise. But you're also not allowed to have a fit of rage. What's more, you're not allowed to accidentally kill people. Now it's kind of interesting, isn't it, when he says you're not don't accidentally kill people. Well, how can you tell me not to accidentally kill people? It's an accident. It happens. By telling you not to accidentally kill people, you know what he's saying? Be careful. And it's amazing the number of laws that are designed around getting us to understand that our careless, thoughtless regard for the well-being of others amounts to murder. And it all goes back to us using and abusing people and seeing them as objects for our own good, enjoyment. You are required by God to be careful And so, a classic example in the law is of a person who's chopping wood with an axe, and the axe head flies off and hits someone and kills them. It's an accident. Accidents happen. But what does he have to do? He has to run for his life to a city of refuge. Because it was his obligation to check his equipment before he used it to make sure an accident wouldn't happen. To chop wood in a safe direction to make sure his axe head, if it flew off, wouldn't strike someone. We are required, basically by this command, to see the inherent value and sacredness of human life. And we must go out of our way to protect it to ensure that accidents aren't happening. And even when life must be taken, there is gravity and consequence to it. I am not a pacifist. Uh, I believe that Romans 13 is serious when Paul says that the sword is given to the state to be an avenger. that that means it. But a class, I remember when Ted Bundy was executed. And I remember the, the, the news showing the absolute circus celebrating his you should never celebrate death if god takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked that's the bible then who are we to take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked it has to happen i'm not saying to cry about it but this was an image of god and it's serious and there is something serious about even legitimate killing in the war sense Because at the end of his life, what does David want to do? He wants to build a temple for the Lord. And what is the reason why God says you can't build the temple? Because you are a man of war, and you have shed much blood on the earth. The taking of human life is a big deal. Because God has made us in his image. And so when a human being is killed, it is an attack upon the very image of God. If I stood up here and took a a picture of the president and drew horns on him, or drew a target around his face, and one of you reported it, guess who's going to come have a talk with me? The Secret Service. Because they understand attacking the image of a person correlates to attacking the person. but we as people in every society justify the taking of life and the minimalizing of the value of life, especially at the peripheries. When we're young, when we're old, we couch it in all sorts of scientific, compassionate-sounding language about easing suffering and dying with dignity and, and all this stuff. I was disgusted a few months ago when I was watching this thing where these Dutch politicians were were, were basically shaming this person with Down syndrome, showing this person how much people like him cost the world, cost their society. Just, who do you think you are? Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. Young, old, comatose, as a fetus, which is just a word we've invented so that we forget that it's a human baby, is the image of God. And their life is precious. You want to die with dignity, then you die clinging to Jesus even as your body and your mind deteriorate. Controlling the circumstances of your death, that's not dignity. That's selfishness. Dying with dignity is affirming the sovereignty of the one who made you, knit you together in your mother's womb, and has ordained the very moment of your demise. All life is sacred. And the moment you devalue any one life, the value of all life is inherently degraded in your sight. Who remembers the argumentation before Roe v. Wade was passed? That, oh, if Roe v. Wade is passed, if, then every baby will be a wanted baby. Do you remember that? And we were told that, 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 that uh, abuse rates would drop through the floor because every baby would be a wanted baby. Has that happened? Nationally? Child abuse rates are up over 600% as of 2014. Because when you devalue one life, you devalue all life. And if your conscience can be seared into thinking that one person or one type of person or one group of people have less worth value and are therefore more expendable, then that always translates across the board. But of course... Jesus in the law teaches us it's not limited simply to the actual termination of someone's life. Everything that flows out of us that tends toward the destruction of another human being, even the anger and malice in our heart, puts us on a trajectory towards murder and is therefore in his sight to break the commandment. Which is why the Lord's brother James can write in his epistle, that you have not, and so you murder. Now, he's not talking about a bunch of first century unsolved murders here. He's talking about that desire to basically destroy some other person because they're not giving you what you want. They're seen as an obstacle in your path, and our natural tendency as fallen creatures, self-absorbed creatures, is to want to destroy that which is in our path. And that's wickedness. God didn't put other people on this earth for you to find your delight in them. God put you on this earth to be a blessing to those around you. So you think you're strong? Use your strength to defend the weak. You think you're smart? Use your brains to stick up for people who are more simple. Don't use your wits and your strength to dominate other people. And lastly, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. This commandment speaks to the absolute centrality and sanctity of the marriage relationship. Spoken right here chiefly in terms of its sexual expression, adultery is a fundamental and inherent violation of that covenant. This commandment is not revealing that God is a prude. No, if it's not too risque to say in church, God loves sex. He invented it. He wrote a whole book of the Bible celebrating it. So God is not down on sex. What he wants is for you to recognize that like every good gift, it has its proper place. And the marriage relationship is a picture of God's relationship with his people. And to take ownership or possession of one's sexuality, and to hand it out, or to use other people for that, is to fundamentally mar that picture and it undermines at a very civil level the very fabric the very fundamental relationship upon which every other relationship in society must depend it outlaws of course marital infidelity But when Jesus says, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery, and he's saying it to a mixed crowd, it implies that the concept of adultery is more than just speaking to married people. It's speaking to everybody about illicit sexual activity. It speaks against detestable and abominable sexual practices which the law is going to condemn, such as same-sex such as bestiality, perversions that were so abhorrent that the practitioners of them are wiped out because of it. One of the lessons that I had to preach and hammer home to soldiers again and again and again is that your body is not your own. Your sexuality does not belong to you. It belongs to your spouse. And fundamental violations of that covenant rip apart the couple. They destroy the glory of God's manifestation and appearance to the people because it makes God look unglorious, it makes God look unfaithful. It destroys the stability of the home. It destroys the stability of society itself. So faithfully commit yourself to your spouse. Faithfully find your sexual gratification and fulfillment within the proper bounds that God has instituted, which is marriage. Understand that when God gives his law, It's because he understands the world around us is not doing that. And we need to model a better way. The world is upside down and going crazy. They don't even know what a boy is anymore, what a girl is anymore, what a man or a woman. It's up to us to show them. To show them by our adherence to what God has set forth in creation. So that even by looking at us, they can see that we are salt and light. Brothers and sisters, these are God's commandments to you. Let us pray.